Zechariah 2, verses, uh, sorry, Zechariah 4, which is the second last book of the Old Testament, and Revelations 2, which is the last one of the New Testament. It took me a while to find Zechariah. So it's helping you guys out. I'll just give you some time to find those two. It's only two verses from each. So. <clears throat> verses 1 to 2 of Zechariah 4 read as follows. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who is wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see. And behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And then from Revelations 2, uh, sorry, Revelations 1, verses 12 to 13, we find. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. This is the word of the Lord. Testing. Am I on? I'm on. Thanks, Ryan Bangay. Hello, everyone. Um, we have some announcements. Uh, very quickly. Father God, we thank you for giving us your word in Scripture. And we pray that you equip us to better understand it and read it whenever we dive into it to seek you. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, in a couple of weeks, we'll be beginning our sermon series on the book of Revelation. So when considering what to speak about in these weeks prior to that study, I had to think, what's a good appetizer for the book of Revelation? What goes well with the Revelation of John? What do we normally get out of the book of Revelation when we do study it? And I feel like we did a Revelation series at least once before. I know I was here for that, and I think for in another place as well. But I have a, a feeling that it tends to go a certain way, at least for people like me. And the feelings I come away with are usually like this. First, it's cool, sort of. It's cool, particularly for younger boys, because it's full of armies and angels and dragons and fire-breathing locust monsters, which is not something you often find in Scripture. And the devil gets beat up at the end. Yay! So there's a pretty cool factor in there that comes in quite rapid-fire and compact compared to where well, you have to find it in the rest of Scripture. It's also very weird on first glance because there are angels and dragons and fire-breathing locust monsters. And there are images that don't make sense, and this constant parade of angels pouring out bowls and playing trumpets and breaking seals. And it's almost this enormous relief when Jesus shows up to dismantle all this weirdness we've seen, that we can miss how weird it is how Jesus shows up, our suffering savior king on his white horse coming to make war for the first time. So it's cool and weird, and we often end up seeing it as a kind of a puzzle to figure out. Are the thousand years mentioned in there where Satan is bound and the kingdom flourishes literal? Are we going to expect things to get worse before they get better? What happens if you are saved halfway through the rapture? Do you sneak in or do you have to wait for the second bus? 
And these are questions some of us have asked ourselves. And you try and figure it out and you form your own theories or adopt, you some, adopt someone else's and after the coolness and the weirdness and the puzzleness passes away, we thank God we don't have to figure out what the future holds right now and we close the book and we forget about it for a while. And honestly, it is a hard book to apply sometimes. We begin with letters that have instructive value for all churches, but past that, we're in uncharted territory. There's nothing else in the Bible like the book of Revelation. It's a powerful vision of what is to come and how all the work of God finishes in its conclusion. Now, this does come up in a paler shade in other places, in prophetic texts, in Isaiah and Daniel and Zechariah like we read from which we read a snippet from before and we'll get back to shortly. And they talk about the end of the days and the day of the Lord, yes, but never with this kind of finality. Because an ancient Jew reading the scroll of Isaiah had a reasonable assurance that God was going to send more prophets who would say more words and make that easier to understand. That he would clarify in time what they knew. Events would unfold, prophets would prophesy, and the words of old prophets would come into focus and make more sense. But John's revelation is a closed book. It ends with an injunction to beware anyone who would want to add anything or change anything about it. That's it. That's all you get. That is the last chapter of God's written word in the language of men and women. It will never get more clear than it is presently. And if most of what we do is travel through it and remark at how cool and weird and puzzling it is and then move on without really gaining anything, we may be in danger of selling it short. So I want to talk about the imagery and themes and promises that we can find there. So this is to equip us with some tools so when we do get into that study, we have a way to think about it that hopefully gives us something to carry away later on. So these are three tools that we can use to better understand Scripture for the rest of it and to appreciate the revelation of John. Now naturally because we're talking about the whole book and these tools, it's gonna be kind of a flyover, low detail shot of revelation, but fortunately we're going into a series about it and you'll get the, uh, the blow by blow over the next weeks. So before we go on, it does need to be said, however, that revelation will never make a lot of sense without long-term intentional Bible study. The same can be said of other books in the Bible, but it is more true of Revelation than other books. The more we study the whole counsel of God, the whole thing, regularly, intentionally over our lives, the more we are equipped to understand any given part of it, particularly these weird and strange parts. There's a hedge industry of books about Bible codes and secret patterns in Scripture, and they're almost entirely hogwash. There is no shortcut to understanding God's word better and becoming better acquainted with it. There is no shortcut to it. But there are plenty of ways to get lost and go the wrong way. And having a handle on imagery, on themes, and on promises is a good way to keep on track. So we have these three things, imagery, themes, and promises, and each of these we're going to look at what it is, how not to use it, and what now to do when we are using it. So the what, the how not, and the what now. Now, the reading that we began with is a good example of imagery. It's got symbolism or picture language are the words we can use for that. It's using the image or symbol to portray a truth about something else. 
The Old Testament is rife with imagery. The New Testament is rife with imagery. Sometimes it's a poetic device. Sometimes it's just dropped into conversation. And in the case we've read from Zechariah and Revelation, the image we're given, the imagery we are given, is that of lamps and lampstands. They're instruments for dispensing light. And the light imagery is shot through the Bible from cover to cover, literally from day one. The first day of creation has God saying, let there be light. And there was light, and he saw that it was good. So while God is literally the author of light, genuinely, from the first day of creation, the imagery of light and lamps and lampstands persists throughout Scripture. Typically, it's associated with God's favor, his action, his enlightening people with wisdom. One of the plagues in Exodus was to cover the Egyptians in darkness and reserve light only for his own people. Jesus is called the light. He calls his followers the light. And when we arrive in the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21, 23, we're told that the city does not need a sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it its light and the lamb is its lamp. There's a consistent use of this image from Genesis to Revelation. So that's what we're talking about. Now, for the how not to use it, how not to handle this kind of imagery. Don't force it. Symbols aren't to be taken completely literally. Is there actually a room in heaven filled with lampstands that is seen occasionally by prophets? Probably not. It's a vision. The lamps mean things. In the case of Revelation, Jesus helpfully tells us that the lamps here refer to seven churches. Or, and a sharper example, later on in Scripture, in Revelation 5, we're going to encounter a vision of a Lamb of God, which goes like this, verses 5 and 6. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now many brave artists have attempted to draw what John says he saw. And the effects to render this hybrid... This hybrid lion-lamb with seven eyes and seven horns almost always comes out pretty awfully. Because we're not meant to take it as a literal description of the form of our Savior. He has lion-like qualities in that he is strong and regal and majestic. And he has lamb-like qualities in that he has been sacrificed for our sins. He has seven horns because horns are about, symbolically, power and ferocity and seven eyes because he sees and knows everything. We do not actually worship a mutant sheep. Go away, thank you. It's a word picture. And we also need to be aware that while the symbolism is often carried all the way through scripture, the thing it symbolizes is not necessarily precisely the same each time. For example, the lampstands we discussed in Revelation represent seven churches. The lampstand in Zechariah that we touched on has a different meaning. It's a lampstand with seven lamps that are piped directly into these two olive trees, like they're being automatically rigged up with olive oil. It's a picture of God's sufficiency to accomplish his work without 
the need of others. In the temple, in its construction, it has a grand lampstand and all the tedious work the Levites normally do to fulfill it is made unnecessary in this vision. It's God saying, I don't need help to get this done. He's always sufficient. So we can't simply say, lamps whenever you see them mean churches. That would be wrong. You can't even say, light when you see it always means Jesus. It doesn't. It requires a little care to apply this kind of thing. That's the what and the how not. But the what now do we do with this stuff? What use are symbols if they're not the same each time we see them? Well, for a start, these constant symbolic passages and the use of this symbol the whole way through tie scripture together. We can appreciate more clearly how one spirit inspired every word of the Bible because of the same imagery used the whole way through from the earliest texts to the latest ones. And just because a particular symbol is used two different ways doesn't mean we can't understand it or it's out of our grasp to use it well. For example, we're told both that Jesus is the Lion of Judah and that Satan is stalking around like a lion looking for people to devour. Same lion imagery, opposite application. But it only takes a little bit of thought to understand that. Christ is like a lion because he has the majestic qualities and the powerful qualities. Satan is like a lion because he is vicious and dangerous. Being ready to handle imagery like this is half the battle in making Revelation less weird and making it more easy to grasp. As soon as someone tells you, for example, that the number seven calls back to the number of days of creation and usually refers to something being complete or whole as a symbolic device, things get a lot less weird. If you're willing to take that with a little bit of care and interest, it makes a lot more sense. Of course, it has seven eyes. Of course, it has seven horns. Of course, there are seven churches. You get the picture. That's imagery. Relatedly, we have to be able to grasp biblical themes. So what do we mean by themes? Well, themes are recurring, important elements that are critical to the message of Scripture. They're recurring elements that are critical to the message of Scripture. There are themes which are much stronger in some books than others. The theme of suffering in Job is, often, is obviously the big one. The theme of love in John is much bigger there. And there's themes that run through all of Scripture. Kingdom, sin, covenant, blessings, curses, the father-child relationship, the husband-wife relationship. Being able to identify these themes and grasp them is one of the best rewards of frequently and consistently studying scripture. If you're familiar with the theme of, say, clean and unclean in the Old Testament, you're better able to understand why everyone freaks out when Jesus starts touching lepers and they become clean rather than him becoming unclean. My personal favorite theme is the temple and the garden. Now in Genesis, the first image we get of the place that people meet with God comes in the Garden of Eden. It's verdant with plants and rivers and the tree of life is there and man is driven out because of his sin. And the garden is where he used to meet God and now it's guarded by cherubim, this particular brand of angel. The place where man meets God is the theme. And from there on, the garden becomes images, imagery that is used to refer to that as the place where man meets God. So we shouldn't be surprised that when it comes time to construct the temple in 1 Kings 6, when the instructions are made, 
that they are to carve on the panels inside the temple images of flowers and gourds and gardeny stuff. And there are golden statues of cherubim in there. Even the Ark of the Covenant has a little cherubim on top of it. It's all symbolism reminding the ancient Jews and the modern reader of the garden, of the place where man used to meet God and how the temple is a substitute now for that garden. And when the temple gets destroyed, it's like them being kicked out of Eden all over again. And when we come to Jesus, he says, I will tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days, referring to himself. And then we can say, Jesus is the one we go to to meet God because we can grasp that theme. And at the end of our series on Revelation, we'll eventually get to a scene in chapters 21 and 22 involving this glorious new city, the new Jerusalem. It's oddly cube-shaped. Why? Because the temple was cube-shaped. And not just a temple, but a city big enough to fit everyone inside is now the new temple. And inside that giant temple, there are rivers and two trees of life and gardeny things. The believers are in the presence of God as they once were in the garden and now better with two trees of life, no tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. So how do we not engage themes? What do we do to avoid tripping up and not handling them well? We don't force it. Not every theme is present in every place in the Bible. That's why we need the whole thing. We can't jam the theme of sin, for example, into the book of Esther. It's a book about justice and the survival of the Jewish people in exile. It doesn't have a lot to say about sin, or the temple, or for that matter, God. But it does paint a picture of the chosen people and their faithfulness. There's a saying that goes, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem starts to look like a nail. Don't fall into the trap of looking for the theme of the Bible and trying to mash scripture into it. What we do now then is to acknowledge that the message of the Bible comes out in a great deal of themes, many of which run the whole way through, many of which end in the book of Revelation. And the only way we can ever connect the dots is by regularly, intentionally, reading the whole thing. Usually, a theme will revolve around a particular event, and it'll use imagery to point to that event. So man once dwelt in the Garden of Eden with God, and was cast out, and after that, all the garden and temple imagery we get is pointing back to that event and carrying this theme of meeting with God again. Jesus paid the one and only sacrifice on the cross for the sins of all believers. And all the sacrifice imagery, starting with Abel's sacrifice way back in Genesis, going through Abraham preparing his, uh, his son potentially for sacrifice, all the way up to Jesus' coming, all of that imagery of sacrifice is pointing to the fact that Jesus was going to die on the cross. And carrying with it this theme of substitution and the payment of our sins, so when we run into that symbolism in Revelation and elsewhere, it's important to look for the theme it's carrying and the event that it's pointing to. And when you can start doing that, then the whole thing starts becoming less puzzling, less strange, and more edifying, more understandable. So that's imagery and theme. We must also look for the promises. Promises are exactly what they sound like. Anytime God has promised something in Scripture, you can trust he will fulfill it. 
and because Revelation represents the end of time and the end of the world as we know it, then we can expect any promise God's made to be fulfilled by then. So when God declares in Genesis 3 that the serpent from the garden will have his head crushed by one born of woman, we can take that imagery, and that imagery concerns the theme of the ultimate defeat of the devil. And that theme carries the promise from God that he who has the power to make all things happen will make that happen. And so we're prepared for it when we see it in Revelation. We also have, for example, a much more direct promise that God will establish a forever king in 1 Chronicles 17, verses 11 to 14. Gosh, that's... Oh, no, you can read that. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. When God promises something forever, you can count it to be fulfilled in the book of Revelation. So how do we not use these promises of God? How do we not handle that poorly? The worst thing we can do is just overlook them entirely or miss them. The Bible is full of God making these promises that he will send a king from the line of David, that he will see the serpent crushed, that there will be a day when all the nations gather together to worship him in peace. It's possible to coast along waving off these promises because they don't mean so much to us right now. The idea that God has promised, for example, an eternal king in Jesus Christ is a cool idea to me. But the idea of actually being ruled over by a king in in a meaningful way is so foreign to me that it's hard for me to invest that with a lot of meaning at first glance. But these are the promises that sustained God's people through incredibly harsh times over thousands of years. Literally, it is these promises of God that the Jews were able to cling to that allowed them to remain the people of God, to have some identity to carry that on so that we could have the word of God today. It's these promises that gave them that identity because of their covenant with God. You will be my people, I will be your God, and this is what this entails on either side of that. If we read God's promise that he will wipe away all tears and one day there will be no pain, we do better to take that promise seriously and try and give it some weight. So what can we do with God's promises? Well, the best thing we can do is try and give them that weight, hold God to them. Expect him to fulfill them. He can take it. If you encounter in your study group or private reading an occasion in scripture when God declares he will accomplish something or bring something into being, take a note. Become familiar with what God has declared he will do. As we travel through Revelation, take note of the themes we encounter, sin, the temple, the end of Satan, and ask the question, is there a promise attached to this theme somewhere? Where was it promised? Where did God promise he would destroy sin and death? or for that matter, restore the closeness of man and God as it was in the garden. When you're doing these things, take a moment to honor how the whole Bible holds together according to these promises. All scripture is connected by these images and themes and promises. And once we have those tools, then John's vision stops being a weird and woolly end bit on the Bible. And it starts being the perfect culmination of everything God's been doing through scripture. 
So that's it. Those are the three tools to better prepare us to engage with the weird and cool and puzzling book of Revelation. They're not a shortcut to better biblical literacy. There are no shortcuts, but the best thing you can do to understand scripture is to read more of it. And the best thing that you can do to work yourself up to reading more of it, because that's the real challenge, is to become more interested in it. And the best thing you can do to become more interested in it is to expand your skills, your techniques, and your tools for engaging God's word. God's given us an incredible gift in his written word, one that reveals his character, his plans, the things he's done for us, and allows us to make sense of a fallen world. May he who has given that to us also make us fit to understand it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your holy word. You give light that illuminates the darkness, and we're just thankful to bask in your glory. Lord, help us when we leave this place tonight to take our passion with us, not to leave our reverence for your word in this room, but to carry it with us into our homes, into our life groups and our quiet times with you. Equip us to understand those things that you've written down through your servants and aid us not just in reading your word, but in living a life according to it. That all may know that you are God and that you have spoken in this world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.